Hello, this is the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer, and we are doing things just a little bit differently today. When I asked people to give me idea, food news roundup, that's what I'm calling it, there is an awful lot of good, interesting um, work happening in the food world, and I thought we could talk about some of it. One of those things that I am particularly excited about and that is happening right here in Mendocino County is the virtual workshop series offered by the School of Adaptive Agriculture that is up in Willits based on the Ridgewood Ranch. They have been around for a number of years, uh, certainly struggled with the pandemic as we all have, weren't able to offer in-person practicum trainings for new farmers, Um, but they have pivoted and currently offering a very cool virtual workshop series. All of the classes are on Zoom. They're all very reasonably priced. You can find those classes at schoolofadaptiveagriculture.org backslash virtual workshop series. Some of the upcoming offerings, uh, including one this Saturday called Jumping the Regulatory Hurdles. For anyone who's ever tried to get into farming, you certainly know how um, tricky it can be uh, <laughs> trying to to be a farmer. Uh, there are a lot of rules and laws and regulations that you have to follow. And Michael Foley is the teacher of that class, of that workshop. And uh, if anyone can help you navigate those hurdles, it's Michael. There's also uh, one coming up on February 22nd called Soil as an Essential Ecosystem with Paul Mashka. Anyone who's interested in the important role soil plays in our lives, which, spoiler alert, it's a pretty big one. That's a great class for folks who want to learn more about soil. There are two about mycology, medicinal mycology, and one is called Healing Properties and the other is called Spore to Harvest. That is taught by Michael Cole of Optimistic Orchard. There's also one called Best Practices for Regeneration with Patricia Vargas de Gauder. I hope I pronounced that right. And uh, Intro to Natural Building by Amanda Fisher. There's an Herbal First Aid class by Tara Blue Cloud. Eating and Growing Wild Salad University by William Taylor. And Jay Moscariello, who used to farm here, have moved to upstate New York. And thanks to the magic of the internet, are going to be able to bring us a virtual workshop. All right. Moving on to the number one most popular suggestion for what I should talk about in the Good Food News Roundup, that would be seed libraries. If you haven't heard of a seed library, that's okay. They're, I don't think they're new. Um, I'm sure people have been swapping seeds since we started saving seeds. But what's cool about seed libraries is they are centralized systems that are open usually to everyone. And they are free seeds. There's typically a catalog that you can choose from. And you order the seeds and then... Ideally, at the end of the season, you save some of the seeds from that crop that you grew and you return them to the seed library. If that sounds cool, it's because it is. In Mendocino County, we have a bunch of seed libraries. The library itself, the Mendocino County Library, has five seed libraries, one in Ukiah, one in Fort Bragg, Willits, one on the coast, and one in Round Valley. 
You can find uh, request forms and more information about all of those seed libraries at mendolibrary.org. There's also a seed library offered by the Gardens Project of North Coast Opportunities. Again, same thing. You can go onto their website and learn more. And Victory Gardens for Peace on the Coast also has a seed library. So what's excellent about seed libraries is it makes gardening even more accessible to folks who don't have a lot of resources. It doesn't get more affordable than free. And it's also a great way to create community and um, come together around the interesting things that grow in our county. And it's a low stakes way to try to grow something new that maybe you've never grown before. There's also the opportunity to exchange information on how it grows in the area and where your successes and maybe failures were. All of these websites also have a bunch of resources on planting guides and watering recommendations and all of that good stuff. So I highly recommend checking out one of our local seed libraries. They are all over the country. They're all over the world. A lot of them are online. So if you wanted to get really industrious, you could look for seed libraries in other areas that maybe have similar growing conditions to ours and request some seeds from there that we don't typically grow in Mendocino County. That could be a really interesting way to bring new crops to the area. There is also this Saturday, February 19th at noon at the Little Lake Grange in Willits, the Grange Free Seed Exchange. So if you have some seeds from last year that you saved or even the year before or even the year before that, seeds can last for quite a while. Head on up to the Little Lake Grange in Willits this Saturday at noon and get your seed exchange on. And if you do, please call in the next time I host a show. I would love to hear from you about what you got, what you're growing, what you love about seed libraries, and what you love about gardening in Mendocino County in general. It's always fun to uh, to hear from folks about what they're growing. So this next piece of good food news might be a little controversial to some listeners. I personally am very excited about it. I am a meat eater, and I also try to be a conscientious meat eater. And the North Bay Slaughterhouse, which I think we can all agree slaughterhouse is a terrible word and certainly contributes to some of the stigma around animal harvesting. So let's call it a processing facility. Um, The Bay Area Ranchers Co-op just announced a few weeks ago that they have opened a mobile processing facility. So they are based in Sebastopol, but since it's mobile, that means it can travel to where the animals are. And it's a co-op, so any area rancher can buy in. They are anticipating being able to help harvest the approximately 10,000 head of livestock that are uh, harvested annually in the North Coast area uh, throughout the North Bay. Almost all of those animals will now have to travel 50 miles or less, which I think we can all agree is a good thing, even if you aren't a meat eater, even if you oppose uh, eating animals or using animals in any way for human gain. These animals will be harvested regardless. And the fact that now there's a better opportunity for them to travel a much shorter distance, have a much more peaceful transfer process, 
not have to go to a crowded facility, not have to spend a lot of stressful time in a truck, um, being just in a, a lovely setting. You know, like like our ranchers like to say, folks who are doing it on a smaller scale and are trying to be respectful of the animal and the life process, these animals have one bad day. And thanks to the Bay Area Ranchers Co-op, that bad day is going to be even less bad. I'm really excited about this. In 2013, the EDFC, which is the Economic Development and Financing Corporation in Ukiah, funded a feasibility study for whether or not a small-scale mobile, uh, not mobile, a small-scale processing facility in Mendocino County, specifically, I think, in Ukiah, could be feasible. They found that it would absolutely be feasible. There was a lot of demand for it. Over the past however many years, a lot of processing facilities have closed. They've gotten consolidated. The facilities that are available locally um, are in... There was one in uh, Santa Rosa, I believe, that maybe closed or had some issues. Uh, Most of our ranchers end up having to go to Eureka or the Central Valley And those places are harder and harder to get into because they only have so much capacity. They're further away. So this EDFC study was to determine if we could build a processing facility here in Mendocino County. The study showed that, yes, it would be feasible. It didn't ultimately happen for a variety of reasons. One of them was a pretty vocal minority of folks who were vehemently opposed to having a processing facility for animals opened up in Mendocino County, which I can understand at an emotional level. I get it. If you don't eat animals, if you are fundamentally opposed to their consumption, I understand. And also, I would like to think that everyone wants a better life for these animals, and that includes more humane processing, which also includes not having to travel as far. So don't at me, but (laughs) there's a new mobile processing facility to serve our area. It's also great for the environment. The less these animals have to travel, the fewer miles we're putting on these trucks, a lot of which use um, a lot of fuel to get there. So according to the Bay Area Ranchers Co-op website, they think that by doing these local harvests, they will save... 19.6 tons of CO2 if just 11 ranchers use it, and they're expecting dozens. 26,000 fewer miles driven in just eight months, and a 78% total reduction in greenhouse gases associated with the harvesting of these animals. So I, for one, think that's all great. I'm really excited for our local ranchers to have um, better opportunity to have their animals processed in a more local way. And honestly, just co-ops are the best, right? We can all agree. Co-ops are wonderful. They are owned and operated by the same people that use them. And that helps keep everybody accountable. That helps ensure that... These animals are being treated in the most humane, respectful way possible, and I'm all for it. So maybe one of these shows will get a rancher on and they can talk to us a little bit more about that. And I'll take calls that day and people can call in and be either for or against, hopefully not too vocally against. Um, But, you know, everybody has has a right to their opinion. Okay, that is enough about the processing facility, but... 
hooray for humane harvesting of livestock. Ooh, okay. On a much less controversial good excuse me, good food news topic. One of my dear friends up in Seattle, which is where I am from, reminded me of the Beacon Food Forest. Not that I had forgotten, just sort of brought it back to the forefront of my mind. And yes, absolutely. The Beacon Food Forest and all food forests are a good food news piece. So the Beacon Food Forest, like I said, is in Seattle. It started in 2012, right when I was starting my move to California, uh, they started breaking ground just a couple months before. So I remember when it when it started and that I had friends that volunteered with it, but I wasn't really involved. At the time, I had been living kind of near there, and I can imagine myself being a very enthousi- enthusiastic volunteer. But the Beacon Food Forest is a seven-acre swath of grass, basically, or it was grass at the time, Um in the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Seattle, which is pretty urban. It's just south of downtown Seattle. The new, well, I say new, it's 10 years old now. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, light rail go has a stop there. And volunteers, there was a core team of, I think, seven friends who got together and said, this is a big, ugly swath of grass. Why don't we do something about it that's actually useful and productive for the community? And they went to the city of Seattle and they negotiated a a very, very, very low cost lease on that land, a long term lease. They broke ground. And since then, they have just been growing it and growing it. So the concept of a food forest is that it is open harvest for everybody. Every single person who passes by a food forest can harvest whatever they want. I can remember when they were first starting talks about the food forest, there was maybe a reporter, I'm not sure, but someone said, well, what happens if someone comes by and picks all the blueberries? And their response was so impactful. They said, that means it's been a success. I love that. Coming at it from a place of abundance instead of scarcity. Um, Just really, it's a powerful ethos for all of us to work from. And they have reported now, you know, 10 years on, that they have never had what's called, I believe, a wipeout harvest. (laughs) Um, People, their official stance is take what you need and leave some for others. And that seems to really be working. There are many volunteers that keep the food forest running. They offer classes. And again, people can come and work in the garden and the food forest and they can harvest what they need. So they grow vegetables and they've planted fruit trees and they have um, a pea patch, which is the Seattle area's uh, city-run community garden program. And they also have a plot that's specifically for the food banks. So no one harvests from those except the designated people, but the rest of the the space is open harvest for everybody. So the Beacon Food Forest wasn't the first one. I believe the very first food forest was over in North Carolina in the late 90s. But it was the first one to get sort of national attention. And... Since then, they've just been popping up all over the United States. Today, there's something like 100 food forests in operation around the uh, United States area. And what's great about food forests is they build community, first of all, which I think we can all agree is extremely important and has never felt more important to me Um 
since uh, going through a pandemic, this pandemic that we've all been uh, suffering through for the last two years. And just that sense of community, of having people with shared values and a shared interest in how to spend time and how to come together to create something bigger than you and that then supports other members of the community is just really powerful. It's also a great way to use up some land that's maybe just an ugly patch of grass next to a busy road, which is what the Beacon for Food Forest is built on. It's was just a sort of long, skinny patch of grass next to a major road. And now it is a beautiful, thriving, open-to-all place to come and pick some blueberries. It's also an, a powerful way to combat food insecurity and scarcity. And just for... There are certainly people in the Beacon area that are low income. And just knowing that if you're having a lean night... Pretty much any time of the year, you can head down to the food forest and there will be something for you to harvest. I, I can't imagine the peace of mind that that brings to to people that are aware of it. So maybe we should get a food forest going in Mendocino County. What, what do you think? Anybody listening with a swath of ugly land, they want to make a food forest? Food forests are similar to community gardens, certainly. And I would say that the community gardens throughout Mendocino County are absolutely a good food news item. Not necessarily news because they've been around, but always noteworthy. I had the Gardens Project of North Coast Opportunities manager Sarah Marshall on as a guest a few weeks ago. And when I first came to Mendocino County almost 10 years ago, the very first thing I did was volunteer with the Gardens Project. So I'm maybe a little biased on the the coolness of community gardens, but I'm pretty sure everybody can agree community gardens are rad. They are different from a food forest in that you cultivate your own plot and you harvest from your own plot. But there's always tons of sharing that happens at food, excuse me, at community gardens and that sharing of knowledge and they do teach workshops and it is a community space. So maybe we don't need a food forest. Maybe we have plenty of community gardens and should just keep building more of those. But in general, I would say any sort of community food growing um, is is a good thing for, for all of us and So here's another one that maybe, strictly speaking, isn't food-related, but bear with me because I think think we'll get there. And this is also just a project that I'm particularly excited about. It's called the Ocean Cleanup Project. You can find them on Instagram at The Ocean Cleanup. This is an organization that has been developing technology for years. I remember hearing about them years ago. Um, initially sort of laughed off or not taken super seriously. But since then, they have had great success. Uh, The technology is to clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. If you don't know what that is, I don't know where you've been, but it's an enormous, enormous garbage patch, literally, in the Pacific Ocean. The way the world's currents work, it sort of swirls them all together into this huge area in the Pacific Ocean. I don't know the size and I won't guess because I'll probably get it wrong, but it's huge. You can look it up. So obviously plastic in oceans is a problem and this organization decided to do something about it. So they developed a system to gather 
plastic from the garbage patch with their ultimate goal of cleaning up the patch. So like I said, it's taken years. They've done a lot of tests. They really wanted to develop a system that wouldn't harm the wildlife that's attracted to the garbage patch because it is teeming with marine life. And they did it. So they have developed um, this really cool system that has a it's a net between two boats. And then they pull the net up and drop all the plastic onto their deck. And if you follow their Instagram, they have these really dramatic videos of them being dropping all the plastic onto their deck. And it has been very successful in not harming any of the wildlife that's there. It's proven to be very effective at capturing the plastic. They have two systems deployed and they're hoping to deploy, I believe, 20 systems total. They've only been out there for a couple months. The latest haul um, from their system two, I believe, eliminated one one thousand five hundredth <laughs> of the patch. Um, so it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's certainly a start. And again, they've only been doing it really at full scale at, with these two systems for a few months. So all of the plastic that they harvest, they dispose of as responsibly as possible. They recycle as much of it as they can. They take the plastic that they can make new products out of and do that. And they sell those as fundraisers. Their first one was a pair of sunglasses that I think were kind of ugly, but great for a good cause. And pretty sure they sold out of those. So pretty popular program to fund because who can't get behind eliminating plastic from the ocean. They're also doing what's called the interceptor system. They've identified a thousand rivers of the most polluted rivers, which is very depressing that there are a thousand most polluted, which means the others are probably still pretty polluted. Anyway, a thousand rivers around the globe that are responsible largely for the plastic that's entering the Pacific garbage patch, because there's no real point in cleaning up the garbage patch if we then just keep dumping plastic back into it. So these interceptor systems go across the mouth of these rivers. They have had to design those a little bit differently because the the trash that comes out of rivers is very different from the trash that's already in the garbage patch. It's a lot of organic material. It's a lot of food waste. They find that there's a lot of water lilies, uh, which are invasive and are present in a lot of rivers. So it's a different kind of waste that they're capturing, but also has the same protocol for keeping the marine life safe. And they work with the local communities on deployment, on operating them, on managing the waste that they collect. So they are really getting buy-in from the people who live near the river, who maybe rely on the river for their livelihood. It is really, they are focusing on working directly with the communities, which nothing can work if you just come in and impose your system and values and beliefs on the local community. So that's the Ocean Cleanup at the Ocean Cleanup on Instagram. So I realize that maybe doesn't feel super related to food, but hear me out. About 10 to 12% of the world's population relies on oceans and rivers for their livelihood and for their nourishment. So it is certainly in their best interest and our best interest, anyone who likes to eat seafood or anyone who just generally likes marine life and the ocean, to see it be a little bit cleaner. Um, if you do eat seafood, 
having less plastic in the waters where our seafood swims hopefully means they'll be healthier, means we'll be healthier for eating them. If you don't eat seafood, you're probably into not having plastic in the ocean as well because that's just healthier for all of the animals that and organisms that call the ocean and waterways home. So, yeah, the Ocean Cleanup Project, I'm really into it. And I do think it's it's food-related. Let me take a minute to reintroduce myself. I am Elizabeth Archer. This is the Farm and Garden Show. I am doing a good food news roundup. Going to take a little musical break and then come back with some contributions from Black Americans to our food system. So we just listened to Mom's Apple Pie by Tyrone Davis that was released in 1991 and before that we listened to Pass the Peas by the JBs released in 1972 both black artists black groups and that brings us to the next segment of this good food news uh, show which is contributions from black Americans to food and farming it is February it's black history month I think we could talk a lot about why Delegating black history to a single month is not ideal, but I'm here to celebrate our black Americans in any way that we can. I also want to point out something that might feel a little bit groundbreaking to people because it certainly did when I heard it. Black History Month is not about slavery. Slavery is actually the history of white people. Black History Month should be about celebrating black excellence, the contributions that black people past and present are making to society, to culture, to each other, and that certainly includes food and farming. So this is certainly not a comprehensive list of all people, black Americans that have contributed to food and farming, but here are some high level highlights of folks that maybe you learned about in school. Maybe you didn't. Um, Maybe it'll jog your memory of a couple of those school lessons and then maybe some you've never heard of. So the first person I want to focus is on George Washington Carver. He was one of the original American food pioneers. He was actually born into slavery the year before it was abolished. He was the first black person to earn a Bachelor of Science degree ever in the United States, and he went on to earn a master's degree in agricultural science from Iowa State University. He taught poor farmers that they could feed hogs acorns instead of feed that they bought at a store, so helped them be more economically viable. He showed farmers who lived near swamps and river bottoms that they could enrich their land with like muck and mud instead of the fertilizer, again, saving money, saving chemicals. He is often associated with the peanut. He developed more than 300 uses for peanuts. However, not peanut butter, which is commonly attributed to him, but even it's hard to imagine 300 uses for peanuts that don't involve peanut butter, but didn't occur to him to put him in a blender, I guess. Maybe they didn't have blenders back then, I'm assuming. Um, he also invented 118 products from sweet potatoes, which includes molasses. So if you love molasses like I do, thank you, George Washington Carver. 
He was also one of the originators of the idea that we should rotate crops. He studied cotton fields and noticed that just the constant planting of cotton, which is a very resource-intense crop to grow, was depleting the soil. And so he helped found the sort of idea of crop rotation. So thank you, George Washington Carver, for all sorts of interesting products, but not peanut butter. I wonder who invented peanut butter. I could probably look that up. Okay, the next Black American who contributed to the American food scene is Booker T. Watley. He started what we would today call the CSA, which is Community Supported Agriculture. So after World War II, he started something called a clientele membership club. Uh, you Members paid a fee in exchange for produce that they actually would pick themselves. So the farmer would plant it and grow it, and then members had the opportunity to come out and pick it. So today we call that community-supported agriculture uh, definitely a good food news item. If you don't know what CSAs are, they are a way to support the farmers in sort of the winter months. It's sort of a forward contract where you pay an amount. Typically, uh, you can pay it all up front at once or you can pay a monthly fee and then you get a box of produce on a certain schedule. It can be weekly, bi-weekly, even monthly and that box rotates depending on what is in season which is really great for the farmer because then they know that they have X number of people to grow for. They have that money guaranteed. That also allows for crops to thrive and fail. So if I'm not guaranteeing you X number of pounds of tomatoes or X number of heads of lettuce, if I have a bumper crop of watermelon, for instance, then my CSA customers are going to get a couple watermelon. And if my snap peas end up not doing well, then you don't get any snap peas. So it's a very cool way to support farmers, eat what's in season, eat local. So thank you, Booker T. Watley, for introducing us to community-supported agriculture. So the next person, next Black American that contributed to our food culture, Shirley Chisholm. She was the first Black woman ever to be elected to Congress back in 1968. She was a Democrat from New York. As a congressperson, she helped create the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program, which is... Oh, excuse me, for women, infants, and children, which is called WIC. And that is a program that continues to this day. It helps prevent food insecurity among low-income mothers and their young children. She was very focused on helping lift people out of poverty. It's very hard to lift yourself out of poverty if you're hungry and if your children are hungry. So that was a pretty major contribution that continues to this day. On that same vein, I want to talk about the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program. So whatever your thoughts about the Black Panther Party, I personally think they were very rad. Their free breakfast program was hugely impactful and has actually continued to shape the way children eat today. In 1969, the Black Panther Party started providing free breakfast to children before school. They realized, naturally, that hungry kids have a hard time learning, and children living in poverty often went to school hungry and came home hungry. At the time, there wasn't free breakfast in schools. There was reduced price lunch, but not free lunch. And so for kids who didn't have... Uh, you know, two pennies to rub together. They couldn't afford reduced lunch. And so they were hungry all day. And 
anyone who's ever been hungry before knows how hard it is to focus on anything but that rumbling in your belly. So the Black Panther Party started feeding kids in 1969. That went on until 1977. They fed tens of thousands of children across, I think it was about two dozen cities. It was groundbreaking, revolutionary even, and it is the inspiration for the current federal free breakfast program that was authorized and funded by Congress in 1975 and continues today. Not before, however, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, remember him, tried to sabotage the program. He thought that it was um, radicalizing children and... They, he called the Panthers the greatest threat to the internal security of the country because of their free breakfast program, um, which is a wild thing to say. And also just, you know, feed kids. Um, the government is capable of doing that, and that is what they ended up doing. But first, J. Edgar Hoover tried to sabotage the program. The FBI sent forged letters to stores to discourage them from donating food to the breakfast program. They spread rumors that the food was poisoned, and they even raided sites while children ate. So... Nothing like a little trauma with your free breakfast. Thank you so much, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. And I'm very glad that instead the tactic they chose was just authorizing a free breakfast program in 1975. So I think we owe a great debt to the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program for greatly reducing hunger in at least school age children during the school year. And also now we have summer programs that provide free meals to, to children. So maybe without sort of the the controversy around the radicalization of children by giving them free food that resulted in the free breakfast program, maybe that wouldn't have happened or would have taken a lot longer. So yeah, free breakfast. The next person I want to celebrate near and dear to my heart, Chef George Crumb invented potato chips. In 1853, he was working at the Moon Lake Lodge Resort in Saratoga Springs and just had the brilliant idea to cut potatoes thin, maybe soak them in some ice water. I don't know if that was one of the original methods or if that came later. And chuck them in some hot oil. I love potatoes. I love potato chips. I think they are the perfect food. And God bless you, George Crumb, for inventing potato chips. In 1860, so seven years later, he opened a restaurant of his own, and every table had a basket of potato chips. I want to go to that restaurant. Generally, it's important to acknowledge that black food is the backbone of American cuisine. Historically, African Americans' agriculture and botanical skills literally built this nation. They um, enslaved Africans who were from areas that raised livestock, had expertise in cattle rearing. Um, They became some of the original cowboys and really impacted how we raised and herded uh, cattle. In the early 19th century, one-third of the cowboys who herded cattle across the western United States were black. And then on the eastern seaboard... Africans and their descendants became experts in oyster cultivation, a practice that is still very near and dear to many of our uh, seafood-loving hearts. Certainly, we have some excellent oysters grown in the Humboldt Bay, 
And maybe without some of that traditional African knowledge, we would never really have started cultivating oysters. Who knows? Traditional African planting methods have also had an enormous impact on the way that we grow food. They resulted in higher crop yields. Uh, African foods like okra, black-eyed peas, watermelon have been intro- were introduced into United States food eating repertoires thanks to enslaved Africans. Um, West African knowledge of rice culture had brought rice cultivation to the East Coast during the time of enslavement. So we owe a huge debt to enslaved Africans who brought all of their food knowledge to this country. Today, only about 1% of farmland is owned by black farmers, which is really depressing. In 1920, it was close to 14% of farmland was owned by black farmers. But because of, I'm going to say it, systematic racism, they were locked out of systems of lending. They were victims, are victims of predatory practices to take family land. They weren't allowed the same legal rights to their ancestral land, not ancestral, but to the land that they had been cultivating and who the, when their families had been on it for generations. This is still happening today. Their land is taken from them. Um, so, yeah. The, and that 1% of black farmers make about 75, 70% as much as white farmers and do not have nearly as much access to capital. Um, so it's certainly problematic. Today there are a bunch of programs and organizations seeking to increase black farm ownership, which is good. I hope we can all agree. Uh, 1% of farmland being owned by black farmers, no matter how you cut it, is not a representative percentage compared to the number of black people we have in America. And we really need diversity in our farms and farming. Without diversity, so much is lost. Culture is lost. Crops are lost. Generational wealth can't be created for those families. And I just really hope that these programs that have started fairly recently, the Biden administration has focused quite a bit of the USDA's programming on increasing black and other minority farmer rights and ownership and programs to support them and to to lend money to them. I hope that those continue. I had a guest, Susan Lightfoot, on several weeks ago who works with the Wallace Foundation, the Wallace Center, and they focus a lot on this. And if Susan's working on it, I feel good about it for sure. There are some cool accounts on Instagram focused on black farmers and racial equity in farming. One of them that I highly recommend is Soul Fire Farm, if you want to follow them and learn a little bit more. So I know that for some people listening... We have a lot of white listeners, certainly, and I know it can be easy to feel defensive when we talk about things like systemic racism. I get it. I understand that that can feel uncomfortable, but it's our responsibility to sit with that discomfort and find where the truth is. It's our responsibility not to project our own experiences onto others. If you are not black, you don't know what it's like to be black in America or anywhere in the world. And even though you might think, oh, slavery was so long ago, these systems of systemic oppression and racism certainly persist today. And if you want some resources on that, the 1619 Project series, uh, that's a great podcast, very interesting. They had a couple episodes on farmers, tobacco farmers in the South, 
and how they were they're locked out of the system black farmers are locked out of the lending system essentially and they're not they don't get loans as early as white farmers and they don't get them in the same amount this is real and it's still happening so i hope that if you're listening and you're feeling a little yucky inside that you just you recognize that and you sit with it and you find some resources to learn about why you might be feeling that way and then maybe you know find a cool account to follow find a way to educate yourself and maybe make a donation to an organization that is supporting black farmers so happy black history month thank you for coming with me today on this little journey through some good food news. There is so much else out there. I only scratch the surface. It is really easy to get down in the dumps on various things happening in the world. I certainly get down in the dumps on things happening in the world, but it's important to focus on the good too. And joy is also an act of revolution and resistance. Um, A good friend told me that recently, and I think it is important to find joy and happiness in the good things happening around us. And nothing, in my opinion, has the ability to bring us together in a shared moment of community and joy like food. So... To that, I say thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who feeds us, to the farmers who grow the food, to the field workers who harvest it, to the procurement folks who get it to the stores, to the the folks who come to the farmer's markets and sell it to us and talk to us about the wonderful things they've grown and to the people who cook that food for us in restaurants and the the folks in kitchens feeding their families and friends. That includes me. I love to feed people. I love to cook. I can't wait to start throwing big parties again. Um, hopefully we're moving toward the endemic stage of the pandemic here shortly and we can start to, or at least I will feel more comfortable gathering in large numbers and feeding people just as much food as I can possibly stuff into them. So just thank you to everybody who feeds us and thank you to the organizations working on initiatives to make it possible for black, brown, indigenous, and other minority farmers to get an equal seat at the table, to get more access to land, to get more access to capital and resources. I hope you persist in that good, important work. This has been the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer. It's been a pleasure to be here with you today. I'll be back in two weeks with some more interesting happenings of Mendocino County food and gardening news. If you have any interest in being a guest on the show or have an idea for topics or just want to give feedback in general, you can send an email to dj at kzyx.org. Just put farm and garden in the header. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.